Amen. All right. Well, we're there in the book of Job, Job chapter number four. And uh, several weeks ago, we started a uh, study in the book of Job, and we're taking one chapter uh, a week, and we've made it through uh, the first three chapters. And of course, we're in chapter chapter four uh, tonight. And if you remember, uh, the first two chapters of the book of Job are the narrative. They're the story about Job, and we learn about Job and everything that Job went through. And then in chapter three, uh, we began this conversation that's going to last uh, over 30 chapters uh, where we, between Job and his three fa- friends and eventually a fourth man who speaks up at the end. And, uh, of course, it was Job who broke the silence. Job who began to speak in chapter 3, and he was very down and depressed, and, of course, we can understand that. Tonight, we're going to continue here in chapter 4, and in chapter 4 uh, begins uh, a talk or a response by one of his friends by the name of Eliphaz. And uh, this is Eliphaz's response to Job. And it's not just chapter 4, it'll also be chapter 5, so we'll continue it next week. Uh, But I want you to notice, we'll just walk through this and I'll give you several things. Notice there in verse number 1, the Bible says this, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said. And I want you to notice, it's interesting, uh, because, you know, sometimes when you read the Bible, if you read the book of Job, you, you might just kind of get bogged down in, in, in the words you're reading, and, and you don't realize that, uh, especially in this conversation, you're actually reading what people actually said. And you can kind of see uh, this man's uh, Eliphaz, you kind of see his, his uh, personality come through. Because in verse 2, he says this, he says, If we assay, and the word assay means to attempt, uh, to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? And and what he's he he's saying this because if you remember in Job chapter three, Job is uh, you know wishing he'd never been born and wishing that he could die. He's desiring for the day that he can die and go to heaven. You know, he's, it's a very a low time in Job's life. And here, um, Eliphaz he says, uh, if we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? He said, if we attempt to commune with you, are, are you going to be? Upset, he, he he's basically saying, Joe, can can I say something to you? And what he's asking is, he's saying, can I say something uh, without upsetting you? Now here's what, now that uh, you know, up to that point, if that's where the verse ended, you would think, well, that's very considerate of him. But I want you to notice how the verse ends there, verse two. Uh, he doesn't allow Job to answer. He says, if we are saved to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? Question mark. And then he says this, but who can withhold himself from speaking? So so he basically says. Can, can I say something to you? But then he says, oh, it doesn't matter. I can't help myself. You know, I've, I've got to say uh, what I have to say. So, so you can see kind of the personality of the type of guy that this guy was. Because he's, he's saying, you know, I'd like to say something to you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Is it okay if I say something? But before Joe can even answer, he says, but who can withhold himself uh, from speaking? So then he begins in verse 3 to speak. And in this, in this chapter, uh, I, I want you to notice, and I'll give you three th- thoughts, and you can write these down. I want you to notice three uh, things that uh, Eliphaz says to Job, or we can divide this chapter into kind of three different sections or different categories, and I would encourage you to write these down. Uh, of course, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes, and you can always write in your Bible, on the side margin, or whatever. But I want you to notice, first of all, tonight, we see Eliphaz, uh, we see his sincere esteem of Job. We see Eliphaz's uh, sincere esteem of Job. And I want you to notice, it's interesting, because he begins by complimenting Job. And he begins by giving us his thoughts 
on Job. And I believe that it was sincere. Now, earlier in the book, we've already seen what God says about Job. In fact, if you wouldn't mind real quickly, just flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, There was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job, and that man was a perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. So, and God said that several times, three different times in the next two chapters. He says that Job was perfect, meaning he was mature, and he was upright. He, he did that which was right. He wasn't crooked, and he feared God, and he uh, uh, would avoid evil, is what God says about uh, Job. But then here we see Eliphaz's, uh, you know, his thoughts on Job. And notice what he says, and I want you to, 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 to realize this. And the reason I want you to see this is because here we get to see a testimony. Because we see God, right, in Job 1 and Job 2, tell us what he thinks about Job. Job is upright. He fears God. He avoids evil. He's a perfect man. He's a mature man. But now we get to see someone, uh, you know, on earth. Someone, one of Job's peers. Someone who uh, is even considered a friend of Job. And I want you to notice what that looks like. Because you and I might say, well, I'd like to be like Job. I mean, hopefully you would say, I would like to be like Job. Uh, I'd like to be upright. I'd like to avoid evil. I'd like to be mature and be perfect. I'd like God to say that about me, that I'm perfect and upright, that I fear the Lord, and that I, uh, I skew evil. But here we say, we, we see a life fast. We see what he says, because, you know, you can look at what God says, and then you might wonder, well, what does that look like? What does that look like in a practical sense? What does that look like, you know, in relationship uh, with those around me? But we get to see uh, his friend tell us what that looks like. Notice verse number three. He tells us three things that Job does. Uh, first of all, he says this in verse three. He says, behold, and this is, of course, Eliphaz speaking to Job. He says, behold, thou hast instructed many. So I want you to notice that when his friend describes Job, the first thing he says, he says, Job, you have instructed many. He says, you have taught many, you have given instruction to many, you have helped many know, uh, you know what to do, and you've helped people by investing in them, by teaching them. He says, thou hast instructed uh, many. Now keep your place there in Job chapter 4, that's our text for tonight. But go with me if you would to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 in the New Testament. You have the T-books, they're all clustered together, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, uh, Titus, 2 Timothy Chapter number two. Second Timothy chapter number two. And I want you to notice, you know, obviously as a preacher of the word of God, I hope that one day it would be said of me, thou hast instructed many. And, you know, that's a goal that I have in my life, to be able to instruct people uh, with the Word of God. But I want you to notice that that's not just a goal that someone should have when they are in ministry or full-time ministry. You know, this is something that every believer should have a goal of instructing many. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul said uh, in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. This is Paul uh, speaking to Timothy. So you've got an older preacher, he's been in the ministry many years, instructing, he's instructing a younger preacher in the ministry, preparing them for the ministry, 2 Timothy 2, look at verse 2, he says this, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, he says the same commit thou to faithful men. I want you to notice what Paul says. Paul says, 
you have heard things about my life. He says, the things that thou has heard of me. And he says, among many witnesses. Paul says, look, when people uh, talk about me, they talk about certain things. They talk about my lifestyle. They talk about the things I preach, the things I say. And now Paul is telling Timothy, he says, the things that thou has heard of me, among many witnesses, he says, the same commit thou to Faithful men. I want you to notice those words. Faithful men. And then he says this. Who shall be able to teach others also? See, the the goal of the Christian life is to be able to take that which we have been given and then give it to somebody else. That's the goal. And that's what Job did. They said about Job, they said, Thou hast instructed many. Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying, Look, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, he said, I want you to commit that to faithful men. Well, what do you want us to do with those faithful men, Paul? What do you want us to do with the message we've been given? What do you want us to do with the instructions we've been given? What do you want us to do with the tradition that have been handed out? He says, That you may be able to teach others also, that you can take what you've learned and that you've taught it to other people. Look, in the Christian life, it is our goal to instruct many. You've heard me say this before, and maybe you should write this down, but the truth is this, that there is no success without succession. We're getting ready to celebrate 10 years of ministry here at Verity Baptist Church. And, and I'm thankful for the 10 years that we've had, and I believe that we'll have many more decades after that if the Lord allows me to live and, uh, you know, allows uh, us to, to serve. But let me tell you something. We could have a great 10 years, and we could have another great 10 years, and we could have another great 10 years, and we could have another great 10 years, and, and, and it'll be failure if we fail. You say, well, well, we teach a lot, we instruct a lot, we've instructed many. But you know what? We need to instruct, and we need to instruct in such a way that those who we instruct, instruct others. The things that they have heard of us among many witnesses, we want to commit that. We want to entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's no success if we teach a lot of great doctrine, if we do a lot of great things, and then it ends with us. There is only success when there is succession. There is only success. Look, you say, why is Verity Baptist Church successful? I believe one of the reasons that we can say this church is successful, you say, you don't have, you know, a a building in the nice part of town. Well, if that's how you measure success, then we're not a success. You should say, you're not a mega church with, you know, thousands of unsaved people uh, that don't know anything about the Bible uh, coming in here. If that's how you measure success, then yeah, Joel Osteen is successful, T.D. Jason is successful, but we're not successful. But if you measure success by the fact that we've been able to take people and teach them the Bible and have them instruct others also, then we're a success. Maybe we have, we have 90 soldiers that go out every week and they take what they've learned and they teach it to others. And that ought to be your goal and that ought to be my goal. Our goal ought to be to teach others also. And please understand this. And you heard me say this, you probably heard me say this every time I stand up to preach. You hear me say something along these lines. I'd like to write this down. If you don't mind writing your Bible, I'd like to online this word, I'd like to circle this word. Write, write this definition down. I'd like to write these notes down. On the back of the course of the week, there's a place for you to write things down. I'd like you to take some notes. You say, Pastor, why are you constantly encouraging us to write things down? Why are you constantly encouraging us to, to jot down notes? Why are you constantly encouraging us to, to, to take notes? Because, please understand this, when I stand up to preach here, I do not preach to be heard. That's not my goal. 
My goal is not to preach to be heard and, 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 and that somebody might say, well, that was a nice sermon, that was a great little sermonette, and we appreciate that, Pastor, and, and, and go on your merry way. My goal as a preacher is I don't want to preach to be heard, I want to preach to be repeated. I want to preach in a way where you can take what you've learned here, where you can take the truth, where you can take, you know, I'm literally giving you outlines for chapter after chapter after chapter in the Bible, hoping some of you men will take the time to teach it to your children someday, to teach it to a co-worker someday, to teach it to a new convert someday. Hey, what you say, Job was a great man of God. What made him so great? I will submit to you that one of the things was that it was said of him, thou hast instructed many. And he says, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. I, I think it's success. Success is the fact that we have so many men that can stand up and preach behind this pulpit and teach the word of God. The fact that we have so many uh, men and women that are able to preach the gospel and, and teach the word of God and teach other, uh, uh, others also. By the way, it's not just uh, men, it's also ladies. Go to Titus chapter 2 if you would. Titus chapter 2, look at verse 3. Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, the Bible says this, the aged women. And it's interesting, let me just go ahead and say this. Be careful, ladies, about trying to gather a group around you that you can teach and be their, their mentor. It's interesting that in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, faithful men. He says, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. But in Titus 2, 3, he doesn't say faithful women. He says aged women. He said mature women. And you say, well, that's not fair. Well, then God's not fair. God said it. Take it up with him. You know, God, God said, look, church is a place where uh, I want men to stand up and preach the word of God. That's very clear in scripture. And he says we should allow faithful men to stand up and preach the word of God. But you know when it comes to ladies, and of course ladies don't stand up and preach the word of God, but the Bible says here, the age of women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things, nuns for, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And here he talks about the fact, and when he says age of women, I'm not talking about an old woman, but he's talking about someone who's mature, someone who's uh, been in in the Christian life for a while. Someone that's accomplished things. And he says, look, some of you older, mature ladies, you've been doing this for a while, hey, you can teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. So notice, you say, well, how can I be a lady that invests in somebody else's life? Well, number one, you need to be mature. You know, be careful about, like the sermon Brother Matt preached, be careful about being the mom with your one kid Telling everybody else how, uh, you know, they're doing it wrong. Maybe you're doing it right. Maybe you've read a lot of books and you got a lot of knowledge and we're not down on you. But just realize that, hey, why don't you, you know, get down the road a little bit. Get down the road a little bit. It's always interesting to me. You know, you, 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 we have a church filled with women that have been homeschooling for years and years and years and years and years. And you'll get some new homeschool mom that hasn't even started or really started last week. And they want to hold a homeschool seminar and tell everybody how they're doing it wrong. He says, hey, let the aged women, someone who's been doing it for a while, someone who's been successful for a while, and by the way, it has to do with your testimony, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Not false accusers, not giving too much wine, not teachers of good things, uh, not, not uh, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. The point is this, 
Something that we should strive for in our lives, like Job, is that we would instruct others. And whether that's in ministry, behind the pulpit, teaching others, uh, like I get to do, or whether that's just individually, which is something we should all be doing, by connecting with people, by investing in people, by loving people. One thing they said about Job was this, Thou hast instructed many. So we see Eliphaz's a sincere esteem of Job. What does he say? He says he's instructed. Now keep your place there in Second uh, Timothy. We're going to come back towards that part of the Bible. But go back to Job chapter 4 if you would. Let me show you the, the second thing that is said about Job here. Not only do they say thou has instructed many, but he says at the last part of verse 3 there, and thou has strengthened the weak hands. He says, behold, thou has instructed many, and he says, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Notice verse 4. Thy words have upholden him that was falling. We'll come back to that in a minute. Then he says this, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. Something that's said about Job is not only that he instructed many, but also that he strengthened the weak hands and he strengthened the feeble knees. So they said, Job, you've instructed people. And then they said, Job, you have strengthened people. Go to 1 Thessalonians, if you would, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you get your place in 2 Timothy, uh, if you just go backwards, uh, you're going to uh, go uh, uh, past 1 Timothy, past 2 Thessalonians, into 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And notice what the Bible says in verse 15. See, you and I can be like Job in the sense that we can instruct many. We can invest in other people's lives. We can take the things that we have learned, and then we can teach others also. But not only that, not only did Job instruct but Job strengthened. Now notice what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, because this is something that you and I can do as New Testament believers as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14, the Bible says this, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Notice what he says. So this is an exhortation to the brethren, right? An exhortation to the believers. He says, warn them that are unruly. Then he says this, comfort the feeble-minded. He says, support the weak. Be patient toward all men. So notice what he says. He says, comfort the feeble-minded, and then he says, support the weak. He says, look, we are supposed to strengthen those that are weak. And I want you to notice uh, there at the last part of verse 14, where he says, be patient towards all men. Be patient towards all men. We're going to come back to that idea in a second. Go with me to the book of Romans, if you would. Romans chapter 14. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 14. And you say, okay, we're supposed to strengthen the weak. What does that mean? You know, what, what does it mean to strengthen the weak, to strengthen the, the, feeble, uh, 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 the, the feeble knees, to comfort the feeble-minded? When we're talking about as New Testament believers, we're talking about uh, uh, spiritually. In the Bible, the weak is a reference to someone who's weak spiritually. Uh, someone who's just maybe a, a new convert. They just got saved. Or just someone who just, maybe they've been saved for a long time, but they've just never really grown a lot. First Thessalonians, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 14, look at verse 1, notice what the Bible says. It says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye. He says, but not to doubtful disputations. Have you ever noticed that new Christians want to just always, not always, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of times new Christians want to just have all sorts of doubtful disputations. They want to talk about, you know, and argue about things, and well, you know, and, and, and probably that's because everything's new to them, and, and they need to learn these things. But you know what? The Bible says, hey, 
him that is weak in the faith, how should we, what should be our attitude towards them? The Bible says we should receive them. He says, receive ye. He says, but not to doubtful disputations. He says, don't, don't just you know, start arguing with them. He said, you want to try to help them. Look at verse uh, 1 of the next chapter, Romans 15, verse 1. Romans 15 and verse 1, the Bible says this, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So look, we're supposed to strengthen, we're supposed to strengthen those that are weak, those that are feeble-minded. And when he says to do it, he says, be patient toward all men. Look, when new believers come into this church, or when old believers that haven't grown very much come into this church, you say, what should our reaction be towards them? Because here's the truth. The truth is this. In churches like ours, where we do our best to instruct others, to teach people the Word of God, there is a tendency for people who showed up to church with their lives a mess, showed up to church not dressed right, not living right, not doing anything right, after being here for a while and getting all the teaching and getting all the preaching, then, you know, growing to a certain place, then somebody walks in that was just like them six months ago, just like them a year ago, just like them five years ago, and it's easy to just kind of look down on them. It's easy to look down on a new believer. I can't believe that they came to church dressed like that. You know, the Bible says we ought to be patient. The Bible says that we ought to teach the Word of God. He said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is powerful doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, through refers unto all good works. And then he says, look, you need to do that with patience. You need to teach them with patience. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering." He said, be patient. Be patient with the new believer. Be patient with the backslidden believer. Be patient with the person. Look, our job is to, you say, well, I'm going to just look up. Because they don't dress the way I like. They don't dress the way I agree. Well, look, you ought to be patient with people. They don't do what I do. They don't do with their family what I do with their family. You know what? You should be patient. And honestly, if you want to be like Job, you should help them. You should go and try to strengthen them. So well, how do I strengthen them? Well, that's, how did Job do it? By instructing them. And I'm not talking about taking a new guest aside and, and trying to teach them a Bible study. I'm saying, look, invest in their lives, love them, help them along the way. When they have questions, not, don't, don't receive them to doubtful disputations. Don't argue with them. Just try to help them. And, and look, and if they're not ready, look, please understand this. When I get up and I preach sermons about standards and separation and dress standards, don't get up and walk up to some visitor or someone who's new and say, well, what do you think about that? you going to get rid of those pants? What are you doing? You know what? That's between them and God. Let them be instructed and then you strengthen them and encourage them along the way. And just remember that when you showed up, you were a mess too. And we can pull out the pictures of when you first showed up and, and sh- you know, show the outfits you came into church with and, and, and look out on you, or we can praise God that people grow. So we ought to instruct. Job instructed, and Job strengthened. Go back uh, to Job chapter 4. Keep in place right there in Romans. We're going to come back towards it. Go back to Job chapter 4. Look at verse 4. Job chapter 4 and verse 4. Then, then he says this, Eliphaz. He says, thy word have upholden him that was falling. So he says, you've instructed many. He says, you've strengthened the feeble 
the weak hands and the uh, uh, strengthen the feeble knees. And then he says, Thy words have upholden him that was falling. So what did Job do? Job instructed, Job strengthened, and then Job upheld. Go, go to the book of Galatians if you would. If you kept your place in Romans, you have Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter number 6, and look at verse number 1. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says this, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, he says, those of you that are spiritually strong, he says, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. He says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Look, he, he, says, he says, if someone gets overtaken in a fault, Oh, well, we should make videos about them and expose them. Okay, if you're carnal, but ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. But he says this in verse 2. He says, bear ye one another's burdens. He said, that's what a strong person does. They come along someone else and say, here, I, I know you're, you're getting weighed down uh, and, and, and you're weak and, and you're not able to, 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 to do what you need to do. Let me help you. Let me come alongside you and, and, and help you carry that burden. See, Job was an upright man. He was a mature man. He avoided evil. Uh, but what does all that mean? Here's what it means. It means that he instructed people. It means that he strengthened people. It means that he upheld people. He instructed all believers. He tried to help believers along the way. He strengthened new believers, and he upheld backsliding believers. And look, if, 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 if our church could be filled with men and women who said, you know what, I, I'm going to try to help people along the way. I'm going to try to encourage people and strengthen people and uphold people. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take patience. Because it can get frustrating. It can get frustrating sometimes uh, to invest and invest and invest and, 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 and see people just, you know, there's no return. But you know what? Job was just consistently helping people. This is a great example of Job's Christian life. You know, we already knew that he was a great Christian, but now we see it from his peers. And they said, well, here's what I've seen you do, Job. Go back to uh, Job chapter 4. So the first thing we saw was Eliphaz's sincere esteem of Job. And I, I believe this was legit. I do think Eliphaz was Job's friend. The Bible says he was Job's friend, and he's given us a sincere, you know, his thoughts about Job. Job, here's what I know about you. You've instructed, you've strengthened, and you've upheld people. And he says those are all good things. But secondly, I want you to notice, not only do we see Eliphaz's sincere esteem, but we also see Eliphaz's snide evaluation. He now begins to evaluate Job, and he does it in a cynical way. He does it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a way that is meant to be uh, critical. Because he just got done telling us all these great things about Job, right? How Job has helped people, invested in people, loved people. Then he says this, notice verse 5. He, he says, Job, you're a hypocrite. Look at verse 5. He says, but now it has come upon thee. He says, you've helped the weak. But now you're weak. He says, you helped him that was falling, but now you're falling. He says, but now it has come upon me, and thou faintest. He says, it toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. So now we, we begin to see his friends, you know, begin to take jabs at him. And, and they're giving us their thoughts. Now, I will say this. 
they're wrong about Job. All right? And please understand that. Obviously, at the end of the book, God tells us his friends were wrong. And what he's saying is not true, but this is the attack that comes from his friend. He says, Job, you're a hypocrite. And here's why you're a hypocrite. Because you've instructed others, you've strengthened others, you've upheld others, and now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. So notice, uh, he calls Job a hypocrite. He says, not only are you a hypocrite, Job, but then he also says this, Job, you are guilty. Notice verse 6. He says, is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? And he's being sarcastic here. He's saying, he's saying, Job, this is what you've produced. This is what your life has produced. He says, this is your fear, your confidence, your hope. He says, this is the uprightness of thy ways. Notice verse 7. He says, remember, I pray thee. Now, he begins to make these statements, and keep in mind, he's wrong about Job. He says this, whoever perished being innocent. He says, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? So here's what he's saying. And he's asking these questions, but he's asking the questions in a rhetorical way, and he's asking the questions to make the point. He's making the point that he doesn't believe these things. He's saying, by asking the question, whoever perished being innocent... The point that he's making, that he's saying is this. No one perished being innocent, Job. This is what he's saying to Job. He, he's saying, when he asks the question, where were the righteous cut off? He says, he, what he's saying is, I've never seen a righteous person get cut off like God cut you off, Job. I've never seen an innocent person perish like the way you're perishing, Job. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Job, you are guilty. Job, this is happening because of something you did. There is some sin in your life. Now, please understand this. He's wrong, obviously. There's no sin in Job's life that brought this about. Job Job is being tested by God. He's being tried. He's being made uh, pure. But he's saying, Job, you are a hypocrite. And he's saying, Job, you are guilty. Now, I do want to just point this out. Because a lot of the things that his friends say, and we're going to learn this as we go through the book of Job, a lot of things that they say are, 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 are wrong about Job. They're not necessarily wrong. They're just not correct about Job. There are other things a friend say that are just flat out wrong. They're just a lie that they're completely wrong about. And then there are some times when they just kind of say something that's true in general, but not true in, in the specific. And you say, what do you mean? Well, I want you to notice there, in verse 7, he says, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent. And here's the thing. If we were to take that phrase just out of its context and say, whoever perished being innocent, that's actually, uh, uh, there's some truth to that. In general, no one perishes being innocent. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. There is none that do good. If you, if you apply it to salvation, right, the word perish... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, in general, the truth is this. No one ever perished being innocent. Look, no one's going to die and go to hell innocent. No one's going to pay for their, their sins innocent. So, generally speaking, that's true. But in the context where he's saying, Job, this, 
this, this whole you're losing your finances thing, this whole your kids being killed thing, this whole your health going uh, downhill thing, this happened because you're not innocent. Specifically speaking, that's not true. So please understand that there are often, you know, different ways that these things can be applied. Sometimes we say it this way, and people argue these thoughts, and, and I'm not going to argue with you if you don't like how this sounds. It's fine. You don't have to use it. But sometimes, you know, we, we speak about how things can maybe be true of us positionally, and then things are true of us practically. And for example, positionally, as a son of God, as a child of God, I have no sins. I mean, positionally, I am in Christ. I am without sin. My sins are gone. They, 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 as far as the east is from the west. But practically speaking, I still sin. I'm in my flesh. Right? So sometimes there are things in the Bible, especially in the book of First and Second John, Third John, there are statements that are, may seem contradictory because he says, well, you know, the sons of God don't sin. That's true. The new man doesn't sin. But then he says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Well, that's true because you're in your flesh. You can't, so, so there are things that are true of us in general, but not specifically. And one day at the rapture, it will all be true of us, you know, completely. And here he says, whoever perished being innocent, well, here's the thing, nobody ever actually perishes being innocent because we're all sinners, nobody's actually innocent. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. But specifically, Job, this is not happening to Job because of something that he did. He actually is innocent in this uh, situation. So I hope that makes sense. Notice verse 8. Not only does, his, does uh, Eliphaz say that Job is a hypocrite, he also says that Job is guilty. Then he says this, Job, you are reaping what you've sown. Notice verse 8. He, said, he says, even as I have seen. He says, this is what I've seen, Job. He says, let, let me tell you what I've observed in life. He says, they that plow. The word plow means to break up the ground to prepare the ground, to prepare the land in order to plant seed in that land. He says, they that plow iniquity, he says, and sow wickedness, he says, reap the same. He says, when you plow iniquity, when you sow wickedness, what does it mean to sow? It means to plant something, to put seed in the ground. He says, when you plant iniquity and when you sow wickedness, you're going to reap the same. You're going to reap what? You're going to reap iniquity. You're going to reap wickedness. He, he's saying, look, Job, when somebody does wrong, when they sin, when they, 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 they sow sin, they're going to reap the consequences of that sin. Notice verse 9. He says, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils they are consumed. Go to Galatians chapter 6 if you would. I'm not sure if I asked you to keep your place. I meant to ask you to keep your place in Galatians if I did it. Galatians chapter 6. And here's the thing. This is true. This is actually a true statement, something that the Bible teaches. It's true, but it's not true about Job. Because he says, look, he, Elijah is telling Job, he's saying, look, this is happening to you because you are reaping what you've sown. He says, you obviously sowed mischief. You sowed sin. You sowed uh, you know, bad things in your life, Job. So now you are reaping those bad things. Here's the thing. That's true. The Bible teaches that. Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is a law that God has put in nature that what you sow is what you reap. But I ever just on Sunday preached a sermon about, you know, you, you get what you put into something. Well, that's true. If you sow something, you're going to reap that same thing. But as we'll say, for he that sowed to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And by the way, when you sow, you always reap more than you sow. You put one seed in the ground and it'll produce many seeds. So he says, look, he, he says in verse 8, he says, For he that sowed to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And look, this is just a this law is a neutral law. This is a law that God established in the universe. You reap what you sow. It's a neutral law. It can be good or bad. He says, look, for he that sows to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. He says, look, if you sow bad things, you're going to reap bad things. If you sow good things, you're going to reap uh, good things. And look, the, the, the thing is, this is true about some people. And sometimes you can look at somebody, and I'm not saying you should do this unless you want to be alive fast, but, uh, you know, you, there could be a situation where somebody's having all sorts of bad things happen in their life, and it's a result of the fact that they've just sowed a lot of bad things. And now they are reaping bad things. That's true. What Eliphaz said is true is just not true about Job. Job wasn't reaping what he had sowed. There may be another situation where God is just punishing someone for their sin, like Eliphaz said. That's true. Be not aware of his correction, the Bible says. But it's not true about Job. God wasn't mad at Job. God wasn't correcting Job. So just realize that you and I don't know everything about everybody. And it's really easy to make judgment calls. Well, I know why they lost their job. You don't know anything. I don't know anything. God's the one who knows. And you know what? If something bad happens in your life, you ought to search your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. You know, you should search your heart and, and, and ask, Lord, you know, is there something I've done? Is there sin in my life that you want me to get right? You know, is this happening? Am I reaping what I've sowed? You ought to ask those questions, but be careful about being the friend who's asking those questions. Because here you have a life that is saying, well, you reap what you sowed. I've never seen this happen to anyone that wasn't guilty. You must be guilty. This doesn't happen to innocent people. God doesn't cut off the righteous. You must not be righteous. So he's saying these things about uh, Job. And the thing is that everything he said, to some extent, is true. Just not about Job. Because Eliphaz is not God. So we saw, number one, Eliphaz's sincere esteem of Job. We saw, secondly tonight, Eliphaz's snide evaluation of Job. I want you to notice third tonight as we finish up. We see Eliphaz's supernatural experience about Job. And it's really interesting because I like this chapter because Eliphaz, he has a supernatural experience. And, and he, of course, wants to apply it uh, to Job. Job chapter 4, look at verse 10. The Bible says this, The roaring of the lion, and the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey, and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Notice verse 12, Now a thing was secretly brought to me. So, this is a life as he's going to tell this story. And he says, so he's setting up his story, right? And he says, Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and mine ears received a little thereof. In thoughts 
from visions of the night when deep sleep falleth on men. So he's talking about the fact that he was in bed asleep and he saw this vision. He saw this dream. Notice verse 14. Fear came upon me and trembling which made all my bones to shake. Then, notice what he says, verse 15. Then a spirit passed before my face. You know, he's gotten this supernatural experience. He's like, oh, Joe, let me tell you something. I was laying in bed and all of a sudden I got really you know, afraid. And, and, you know, I saw these visions. I was in a deep sleep. I saw the vision of the night. Then I saw the spirit. Notice verse 15. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. He's a good storyteller. He says, I stood still, but I could not discern the form that was. I couldn't really tell who it was. And maybe it was my mom. Maybe it was your mom. I don't know. You know, maybe I just saw this form. It passed by. An image was before my eyes. There was silence, and I heard a voice saying, and he's going to tell us what this vision says. I want you to know, he, he takes the time to really set this up. And, and you know, I, th- this chapter is really, it's near and dear to my heart because, and, and you can ask my wife this, I don't know how many times over the last 10 years of ministry, I, I, we've probably, it's probably happened 10 times in ministry where we've had strangers just walk through those doors. I'm talking about first-time guests walk through the door. I remember our church had been around for maybe like three weeks, for four weeks. I had a visitor. They came to our house in our living room, big guy, and, and, you know, I just got them preaching. And back then we had kind of like this, but something smaller. We had these little signs for her. And he's telling me, I saw this in a dream. I saw you preaching there. And the Lord is calling me to this church. And I'm going to be the greatest church member you ever had. Never saw that guy again. You know. And, I mean, I've, ladies have gone to my wife and said, I had a dream that I met you in a cave. And I saw you. And, you know, all this weird stuff. And look. This is what you know. This guy is saying, and, and here's you say, why do people? Why are people into that? You know, I, I think that one of the reasons people are into that is because when you have an experience, you know, it, pe- people generally, unless you're an independent Front Baptist, unless you're me, you know, people generally don't question your experience, right? I mean, that's what the tongue speakers say. Why well, know what I felt? Why well, know what I experienced? I was just, you know, I just started speaking and I woke up and there was white foam in my mouth and I'm not sure what happened, but I know what happened. You know, and, people, and you can't argue people's experience. But he gives his experience, you know, he sets it all up, then he strikes at Job again. Look at verse 17. He says, here's what they said. He says, Job, 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 I know you're not innocent, Job. Job, I know you're reaping what you sowed. And Job, here's how I know. Because the Spirit told me. Because I had this vision and the Spirit said, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. So he says, look, Job, a spirit told me that a man cannot be more just than God. And, and what he's saying is, Job, you think you're more just than God. I mean, Job, you, you think you're just Mr. God it all put together. But he says, you know what the Spirit told me? The Spirit told me a man cannot be more just than God. And when he said that, I thought about you, Job. I mean, that's what he's saying. The Spirit told me that a man cannot be more pure than his maker. And when he said that to me, I knew he was talking about you, Job. And then he says this. He says, behold, he put no trust in his servants. Now, here's what's interesting. Because when you're, when you're reading the, 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 friend, the, 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 the words from the friend, from all the friends, 
you've got to be able to discern what's true what's not, right? I got a feeling this didn't really happen. Um, you know, it's just my thoughts. But, um, but then he says this, he says, Behold, he put no trust in his servants. He's talking about God. He said, God put no trust in his servants. And then he says this, And his angels he charged with folly. Now here's the thing, that's true. You know, here he's, there's a reference, and whether Eliphaz really understood it or not, I don't know. But here's a reference to the fallen angels. Because remember, the point that he's making is, you can't be more just than God, Job. He says, in fact, you know, God even charged his, um, uh, his angels with folly. God found angels that sinned and then let them slide. But he's not, and you think he's going to let you slide, Job? No, you're, you're not innocent, Job. That's the point that is being made here. But it's interesting because there's a reference here to the fallen angels. So obviously, you know, and there's a lot of references to the book of Job. I'll point them out to you as we go through it. Because people like to say about Job, that like, or, or about the Old Testament, or about dispensationalism. They'll, they'll, they'll say, well, they didn't know a lot back then. They didn't have a lot of thoughts. Well, here's the thing. These guys knew about the fallen angels. They knew that God had uh, charged his angels with folly. Those who did wrong, he had accused them of it and, and punished them and didn't let them get away from it. And, and throughout the book, we're going we're to read about the resurrection of the dead. We're going to read about uh, all sorts of things that shows us they're very knowledgeable about what the Bible teaches. Because, you know, the Bible says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And we know that the, there's been preachers of the word of God. Before they had the written word, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And they had the Bible. They, they, you know, and I'm not saying they understood everything. Obviously, they didn't know the name of Jesus. But they had a pretty good understanding of a lot of things. Notice verse 19. He says, How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust. And of course, that's a reference to a mortal body, which are crushed before the, the moth. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if, if he charged the angels with folly, how much less in them that dwell in houses of clay? He says, how much less you, Job? Look at verse 20. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency, which is in them, go away? He says they die even without wisdom. And he's just accusing Job and saying, you know, this is the vision I saw. I know that you're not innocent. Let me just show you something real quickly. Second Peter chapter 1. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. And you know, I, 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 I will say this. When it comes to like visions and dreams, you know, the Bible does teach. And the Bible even teaches in, in a context of end times prophecy that there'll be young men who see visions and handmaidens who dream dreams. And, and the Bible even teaches that in a New Testament type of concept. And I'm not getting Pentecostal charismatic on you, okay? I'm just saying, you know... Is it possible that maybe these things can happen? Is it possible that, 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 that we get a vision of the spirit world? You know, maybe. But I will say this. The Bible teaches that everything must be filtered through the word of God. And I'll just give you an example of this. Second Peter chapter 1, look at verse 17. If you start at the end of the Bible, Revelation, you head backwards. You have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Because here we have Peter telling us about his supernatural experience, and this one actually happened. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when, he came, when there came, notice, such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. This is a, uh, uh, he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration 
When Peter, James, and John went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus transfigured himself, and, 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 and Elijah and Moses appeared, and God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, Hey, I was there. I heard it. I had the experience. I actually am a witness that this happened. He says, Look, I heard, verse 18, And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. But then he says this, He says this in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. It's interesting to me because he says this. This is what Peter says. Peter says, I audibly heard God. But he says, I put more trust in the written word of God than my experience. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. He says, look, the word of God is the, uh, is the final authority. If we have a more sure word of prophecy. So here's the thing. You better make sure whatever vision, experience you have, it lines up with the word of God. Because even in the Old Testament, God says, look, if, if, if someone dreams a dream or sees a vision, but it goes against the word of God, he says, stone him. False prophet. And, and, and look, the truth is this. You know, the devil, the Bible says the devil is transformed into an angel of light. I mean, how do you know that just some demon or some devil doesn't appear to you and tell you to do something? You know, uh, you say, well, well, how do I know it's wrong? Well, if it goes against the word of God, it's wrong. You say, how do you know a devil uh, showed up to Joseph Smith you know, when Joseph Smith tells the story about an angel appearing to him and telling him to establish the Mormon religion, how, how do we know that was a devil? Here's how we know how that was a devil, because everything that Joseph Smith teaches in the Mormon religion goes against the word of God. And Joseph Smith says, well, I, I have experience. I saw a vision, and I saw a thing. Well, look, we have a more sure word of prophecy. So, I don't care what your experience was, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, then it's not true. Then it didn't happen. Then we're not going to believe, or, or it happened, and we're just not going to believe it. And it's interesting. Muhammad, same thing. Some angel appears to him, establish, tells him to establish the religion of Islam. He says, how you know is a, a fallen angel? How you know is a devil? Because it goes against the word of God. So we get this experience from Eliphaz, but we should be reminded, we should be reminded that we have a more sure word of prophecy. And like everything we believe, everything we believe needs to be filtered through the word of God. Everything we believe needs to line up with the Bible uh, because the Bible is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. But here we see, here we see a guy who was wrong, who was not right. Some of the things he said were correct, but not about Job. They said, he said, Job, you're guilty. You've done something to bring this about. Job, you are reaping what you've sown. There's something you were doing that now you're reaping that. Job, you're, you're not innocent. You're not righteous. You're not who you've pretended to be. You're a hypocrite. And, and then he, you say, what's your evidence? Well, I had a vision. That's how I know. I, I, I saw something and I heard something. And that's how I know you're guilty, Job, because the vision told me. No, you know what? We need to get our, our authority comes from the word of God. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to study uh, this chapter, uh, Job chapter 3. And, uh, Lord, even though his, uh, his friend was wrong about Job, there's still just a lot 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and there's a lot here that we can learn about the incorrect things he said and things that we can apply in, in, in our lives. And, and Lord, I pray that you uh, would just uh, help us. Lord, help us to uh, always allow the Bible to trump our experience. Uh, help, help us to just get to the place where the Bible trumps everything. Everything we've experienced in life, everything we've ever been taught, every preconceived idea we've ever had, Lord, help us to be Baptists, to be Biblicists, who say the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.